It's Monday, June 27th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution, but I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who's doing podcasts these days. If you don't believe me, go to our website, hoover.org, and check for yourself. Click on the tab that says Publications, go to the bottom left where it says Podcasts, and you'll find no less than a dozen different podcasts, including this one. You can also subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe to any or all of them if you like. You can also sign up for our monthly Podplast, as we call it, which delivers the best for our podcast to your inbox. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is John Yu. John Yu is a Hoover Institution Visiting Fellow. He's also the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and a non-residential senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he joins us today, residing in decidedly non-residential splendor in what I assume (laughs) is a humid, muggy, uncomfortable Washington, D.C., John Yu has written 10 books, including Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. If you're a news junkie like me, you know John from his insightful writing in the likes of the Wall Street Journal National uh, Review and his many appearances on Fox News. John, for thanks for coming on the podcast today. Bill, I'm so sorry I'm not with you, and I am indeed in the very heart of the swamp where it is muggy and uncomfortable and hot and filled with people who are upset about Roe versus Wade. Well, let's talk about that today, John. So there's a quote attributed to Winston Churchill, which he probably didn't say. Churchill's kind of like Mark Twain in that regard. A lot of what Churchill said, he actually did not. And the quote, John, is history is written by the victors. Now, we look at the Supreme Court right now in the case of the high court, John, the victors would refer to five or six justices, three of them appointed by Donald Trump, two by George W. Bush, and one by his late father, George H.W. Bush, ironically, the man who appointed both Clarence Thomas and David Souter. How, John, do you think history is going to treat the decisions coming from the Supreme Court right now? And I think in this regard, just when we take it in the context of the court itself, which historically, as we know, takes swings to the left and swings to the right. I think this last week is perhaps the most momentous day in the history of the Supreme Court since maybe two other days, Brown versus Board of Education and the maybe the Watergate tapes case under Nixon. Uh, because Roe versus Wade has really, uh, I think, has infected our law, our politics, changed the way that the Supreme Court works, changed the way confirmation hearings work, changed the way we understand our relationship with the Constitution. And all that changed on Friday when the court said we're going to get out of the business of deciding abortion and we're going to give it back to the states. At the same time, the court said, but for the rights that are in the text of the Constitution, like the Second Amendment and right to bear arms, we're going to dramatically expand the right of Americans to have firearms outside their house. Uh, We're still getting cases, even as we speak today, they allowed a a football coach to lead prayers after football games, and we still are waiting on one more case that might result in a severe restriction on the powers of the administrative state. So this is, as you said, I think when you look back, if historians look back 20, 30 years from today on the Roberts Court. First, they may not think it really was Roberts's court, and we mm-hmm. could talk a little bit about that. It might become known as the Thomas Court or the Alito Thomas Court. Right, right. But I think this is when, as you said, the appointments of all those justices by Republican presidents and their thoughts and criticisms of where the court had been, I think it has culminated in this week to really an announcement that you have a self-confident conservative majority. Uh, I think for the first time, in the Supreme Court's history since 1936 and the conflict over the New Deal. John, can you just briefly uh, explain why, from a conservative standpoint, Roe was a bad decision? Actually, I couldn't do a better job than Justice Alito did in his opinion in Dobbs, which people, of course, are upset about. I actually think it's a pretty modest opinion in that it almost summarizes the mainstreams of constitutional thought by conservatives and by some liberals, I might add, like Uh, Justice Ginsburg, for example, is quoted extensively in opinion, Um, and their criticism of Roe versus Wade. First and most obviously, there's no right to abortion mentioned in the Constitution. And when the Constitution doesn't mention a right in its text, we presume that it's a matter for state regulation, just like lots lots of other life and death decisions like euthanasia, like the death penalty, like a lot of issues having to do with child rearing and the family. And so then Justice Alito says, well, there's still, uh, oh, before I say, and no one at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which is the provision at issue here in Roe, uh-huh. would have thought that it banned uh, 
banned anti-abortion laws, that it created a right to abortion. And he surveys the laws on abortion. At the time, in 1868, of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, finds that most states had criminalized abortion. And then he says, and this is the harder part, is, um, is it consistent with the traditions and histories of the American people? Is it a, a right that we've come to acknowledge like some kind of right to privacy? And he says, no, up until Roe in 1973, abortion was still illegal or criminalized in, in a majority of the states. And so the only thing left for Roe versus Wade, and you even heard this in the arguments of the liberal justices, was even if it was wrong, should we still stick to it because it's a 50-year-old precedent, uh -huh. because it was part, part of the uh, revolution in women's rights that took place in the 70s, that people have relied on the ability to get an abortion for so many decades? Or is it time to correct what you know the justices, the, the, the five justices in the majority thought, a major error in their interpretation of the Constitution? Um, in a way, I, I mean, so this is, uh, this is the, I guess the, you could just say, I was thinking this the other day, I was like, you could say Bork and Scalia won. <laughs> Justice right. Scalia or Robert Judge Bork could have easily written this exact same opinion. It was really the culmination of their thought and their criticism of the court for the last 50 years that Dobbs summarized. John, uh, let me put you in an alternate universe where a six to three progressive leaning court takes up the mm -hmm. issue of abortion rights and it decides to overturn Dobbs and legalize abortion rights. What would be the legal argument for doing so? In other words, how how would they justify it? If they get out of the uh, we're not we don't worry about overturning past precedents. So suppose Joe Biden or Joe Biden's Democratic successor someday get to appoint you know more justices to the court. Mm -hmm. uh, what would the opinion look like? It, I don't think it would look like Roe. Because one thing that's interesting about the Dobbs opinion is that it goes at great lengths to quote very famous liberal scholars, like a Justice Ginsburg at the time, like John Hart Ely, former dean of the Stanford Law School and one of the great legal scholars of the last half century, or even Larry Tribe, another great legal scholar, who all pointed out Roe didn't make sense. Right. The reason it didn't make sense is because the court said it comes from the due process clause, this right. And the due process clause says, the state can take away your life, liberty, or property, but only after giving you due process, which means they're just fair in the procedures, which means they can't take away your life, liberty, or property, unfortunately, if they go through the right process. How can that give you a right to abortion? So if the court of the future were going to refine a right to abortion, it would have to come from some other provision of the Constitution. And that's, you know, this is an interesting thing, Bill. You, we see this in politics all the time, but it was worse with the court. People get dug into their positions. Right. So the pro-choice people were so dug into defending Roe, every inch of Roe, that they never really thought of really effective alternatives to Roe that might answer conservative criticisms. Uh, there's, uh, and, and Justice Alito mentions that. And the dissent uh, in Dobbs, unfortunately, is much more of the, uh, you shouldn't do this because it's going to hurt people. Look at all the lives you're going to hurt, which you could say as a dissent to every Supreme Court opinion is right. you're deciding things that are going to have bad consequences for somebody. It doesn't really offer an affirmative argument for why there's a right to abortion. You know, John, one thing with regard to the Dobbs decision is there's so much coulda, woulda, shoulda that surrounds this decision in this regard for all the anger directed at the, the, the six justices, well, the five in particular, and less so the chief, but the five who, who wanted to overturn Roe. Uh, anger thrown at Donald Trump for putting three of these justices on the court. Anger at Mitch McConnell for, uh, for blocking the Garland nomination in 2016. Let me walk you through a timeline here and get your thoughts on this. Let's go back to 2007. Then candidate Barack Obama then presidential candidate Barack Obama uh, goes to Planned Parenthood. And John, what does he say? That He says that codifying abortion rights into federal law, quote, will be the first thing I do as president. <laughs> we fast forward to <laughs> April of 2009, John. Then President Barack Obama says the Freedom of Choice Act, this is the bill that would have done so, quote, is not the highest legislative authority. So, so much for that. We fast forward, uh, Jim Garrity, uh, your colleague at National Review, wrote a great column on this. In October 2013, Obama invites Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the White House for lunch. And he has a plan in mind. And you know, you're smiling because you know what he's after. She is dealing with cancer, and the Obama White House is looking at the very distinct possibility, which turned true, that they're going to get skunked in set elections the next year. They'll lose the Senate. So now's a good time for her to step down and get a replacement judge on board. 
Well, she doesn't care about, she doesn't <laughs> care much for the president's general entreaties. Pat Leahy makes a run at her on this as well. And she digs in. So she doesn't step down. We know what happened. She passes away in 2016. Harry Reid, John. Harry Reid does what? He changes the filibuster rule for for uh, for judges. Mitch McConnell comes along when he's majority leader, and he you know extends that to Supreme Court nominees. So now, when it comes time for the Trump judges, Kavanaugh in particular, I would say even Comey Bear, but really Kavanaugh, they can't block him in a filibuster. So they're just for for all of the for all the hue and cry about protecting Roe, about making sure this doesn't happen. The left missed a lot of opportunities to to complicate the rights desire to undo this law. Bill, it's funny, you know, I don't know how many liberal friends you have. I seem to have a lot more than many other friends, Hoover, and they, it's interesting talking to liberals. They are very aware, as you just went down this litany, of the mischances that they had. There's a growing, uh, I wouldn't call upset or anger, but unhappiness with Justice Ginsburg, the icon of the feminist legal movement uh, for believing that she should not step down when by age and health, as you said, but all those reasons, um, if she was paying attention to the politics of the moment, she should have stepped down under President Obama, ideally, you know, in the before the uh, second term. Uh, you, they, uh, my liberal friends, uh, constantly, uh, they don't admire, they might respect, but they are amazed at what they think of as the Machiavellian cunning of Senator Mitch McConnell, who, right, as you said, kept open the Scalia vacancy and then successfully moved Amy Coney Barrett quickly through in record time, I think, record time moving. So they think they think conservatives are so successful Machiavellian their politics to get control of the Supreme Court, where I think of it as the liberals had all their great, the Democrats had all the opportunities. These were all within their control, as you say, to pass laws, to uh, put, to put Roe more firmly in federal law, to appoint more justices to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. you know, be, uh, to um, try not to get rid of the judici- the filibuster on, on the judiciary, which they had done. So I, I tend to think we weren't the ones who are so clever. <laughs> we just got lucky and we just uh, played, uh, you know, played the hand dealt with us. And I got to say one last thing, uh, and I know this is might be controversial, but I do think Donald Trump gets some credit here because you remember back in the 2016 primaries, there are a lot of conservatives who didn't think Donald Trump was a conservative. And you remember that crucial point in the primaries when Ted Cruz is the alternative to Trump is just the last two of them. And then Trump came out with that list of Supreme Court nominees. And I think Trump did a lot to right to appeal to the conservative wing of the Republican Party when he said, look, I will appoint someone from this list vetted by the Heritage Foundation and Hoover and AEI and the Federal Society, you know, vetted by the conservative institutions. And uh, he kept his promise, didn't he? He did keep lots of promises in lots of other areas, but damn if he did not keep his promise about the Supreme Court. And as you pointed out, those three justices are the ones who delivered Dobbs. Right. So, John, you mentioned the uh, the prayer uh, case that the court decided earlier today. That's Kennedy v. Bremerton School District. The what was at issue here? High school football coach by the name of Joseph Kennedy. No relation to the Kennedys, I assume. Uh, he lost his job after he insisted on reciting postgame prayers at the 50 yard line of his uh, high school football field, despite his employer, the Bremerton School District, instructing him to stop. Uh, Kennedy claimed this violated his First Amendment rights to free speech and free exercise of religion. The school district uh, claimed that a prayer from a public school employee ran afoul of First Amendment's establishment clause, the high court siding with Coach Kennedy in this case. John, one thing I do at the Hoover Institution is every week I write what's called the Hoover poll question. If you go on the front page for our website, you'll see, and I try to make it timely. So here's today's poll question. It is, quote, the 2022 Supreme Court decision with the greatest lasting impact on the public landscape. Then I gave you five things to choose from. They are one, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. That's the abortion case we've been discussing. Two, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. versus Bruin. That's carrying a gun outside the home. Three, Carson v. Macon, which is publicly funded tuition aid for private religious schools. This was a case in Maine. Four, West Virginia versus EPA, John, which is about regulating power plant carbon emissions. And then five, Biden v. Texas, which is Donald Trump's remain a Mexico migrant policy. So you look at those cases, John, is abortion the one that has the most, shall we say, legs across the landscape or any of those other four kind of a sleeper one to keep an eye on? Uh, that's interesting. So I, I, I do think, of course, Dobbs is leading to 
maybe rejuvenation of interest in state politics. Yes. Because the question go back, goes back to the states now. Suddenly, it was, so, yeah, suddenly it's very relevant to know who your assemblyman is and what actually goes on, which, which as you know, as a fellow Californian, Californians don't pay attention to Sacramento unless the lights <laughs> yeah. out, something bad happens. The, the LA Times might have to open a Sacramento bureau again. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> but right. So uh, I think um, the gun case is important, but that's people knew that was coming. And in fact, as it's interesting as the justices point out, Justice Thomas points out in his majority opinion, um, actually most states already allow, you know, fairly, uh, you know, objective standards for giving out permits. And it was just a few outliers like New York, California, and Illinois that mm-hmm. makes things so difficult, it's virtually impossible to get a permit to carry a gun outside the house. So I don't think the Second Amendment case actually changes that much. I think the sleeper might be the last one, which we haven't seen yet, West Virginia versus EPA, which mm-hmm. On the face of it, seems like it's not just seems it is a boring regulation of energy production and very technical detail yeah. about you know what kind of remediation and improvement measures you have to take to stop pollution. But behind it is the claim that the Constitution limits how much power Congress can give to administrative agencies, right. and essentially says, uh, "You, the court, you have to say Congress must make some of these choices itself." So, for example. Most Americans, you know, their major contact with the federal government is probably buying cars that dictate how much miles per gallon their car gets. They would also probably be shocked to learn Congress doesn't come anywhere near that choice. That's up to the EPA. Congress never votes on most of the regulations under federal law that you and I and our everyday lives come into contact with. So that case, if the court has been asked to and could reach the question of forcing Congress to make these decisions. So again, that it's interesting, uh, Bill, that a lot of these decisions you look at enlisted, they have the effect of forcing us to care again about who our state legislators are, who our uh, federal legislators are, taking seriously what positions they're going to you know, vote on on certain legislation. And so that case, that last case might have that. Other. But in terms of long-term effect, I still think it's the abortion case because it's returning, Bill. All this political energy right. is now going to leave Washington and go back to the states. You're already seeing stories about pro-life, pro-choice groups, planning, fundraising, trying to figure out what they're going to do from state to state. I think that's entirely a good thing for our democracy. And this goes back to our coulda, woulda, shoulda, because if you go back and look at the history of legislative races, John, going back to 2010 and the Obama administration, Democrats have been getting destroyed at the state level in terms of legislative control, legislative houses and just local elections. It's the party is hollowed out in that regard. I learned that from your podcast, listening to your podcast with you and Lee I yeah, learned yeah. that, uh, yeah, whatever happened with Trump or the Congress, these you know, Obama, President Obama introduced a wipeout for right. Democratic Party at, at state legislatures. And Trump, 2016, you know, he won barely electoral college. He won popular vote. He didn't. But the Republican Party won hundreds and hundreds of state legislative seats in the 2016 election. And I didn't realize until I started listening to you guys how um, decimated the Democrat. I guess that's why all the leadership of the Democratic Party seems to be 75 years or older, because the Republicans have sort of wiped out their middle generation of leaders. All right. So, John, we've now seen the court go after, in a really short period of time, abortion. It's addressed Second Amendment rights. It's going to soon address immigration, uh, climate change. You are close to the federal society. If the idea here, John, is to weaken the deep state, if the idea is to interpret the Constitution in a way that returns us closer to what the founding fathers intended, what areas should the court also be looking at? Oh, that's a good one, you know, because all these questions we have been talking about are more like modern controversies. Well, actually, actually, let me let me rephrase it, because it's not like the court picks and chooses. gee, we should go talk about guns now. It's a reflection of cases presented to it. Yeah. So if you are a conservative activist, John, what, what, cases, what cases would you be trying to put into the federal judicial pipeline? Yeah, it's interesting. If you were to like if you were to take James Madison or Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton and, you know, beam them using the, the enterprises transporting device forward in the future because you did the slingshot around the sun like they do for right. plot devices in Star Trek. And you brought them here. I hate that actually. I hate it when they do that. But you bring them here and you were just, you know, say, look at the country. What is the most different from what you anticipate in terms of our government? They would say the administrative state. Mm-hmm. They did, you know, they thought there would be these three branches, right? They would be relatively Spartan in size. They would compete and fight with each other. What they didn't anticipate would that would be that Congress and the executive branch with the blessing of the courts would allow the creation of this massive government 
um, that's not really under the control of any of the three branches, that's not democratically accountable, that relies on a claim of expertise. The response to COVID was perhaps the height of administrative state power in our country. You, know, you give all the power to a scientist, Dr. Fauci. They make fundamental decisions about what we can do in our everyday lives based on some theory that of theirs that's never been tested before, never gets approved by anybody because they, what the founders didn't realize is that Congress would want to avoid responsibility for decisions. Mm-hmm. So they get reelected. Presidents like to accept the power, but at the same time, the state is so vast and there's so many decisions and there's so many people involved that presidents are losing their grasp on controlling this beast. And the courts have blessed it because they say, yeah, the president and Congress agree. So this is a huge cancer, I think, on the more pure government of three branches. And then most things staying with the states that the founders anticipate. So if you're a conservative activist, and and they are starting to do this more, more, is attack and chip away at the administrative state. And the court, I think, is very welcoming of this. It has been slowly over the last 10 years removing different uh, parts of the foundation of this vast New Deal state. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mention this introduction, but you are a former Supreme Court clerk. You clerked for Clarence Thomas, if I, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So you know what life is inside of that building, John. What do you think it's like to be inside the court these days? I'm curious about two things. First of all, how well you think the justices are getting along, but then secondly, how things have changed after the draft opinion of Dobbs having been leaked. Right now they're a little bit under siege. I mean, I if you look at the uh, photos and video of the protest, well, I think there's that, there's that, there's that too, getting into the building itself. But uh, <laughs> do you, first of all, do you think we'll ever find the leaker? But then let's talk about how the leaking mm-hmm. of that draft may or may be a turning point in terms of the court. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me yeah, address the first question, which was what's it like at the court inside? So I had the honor and opportunity to do an interview of Justice Thomas at this joint Hoover AEI conference in Dallas about mm-hmm. two months ago now. And the conference was actually about the work of people like Shelby Steele, right. uh, people like that. Uh, and uh, But I couldn't help but ask him when we started. I said, Justice, anything going on at the court these days? And so he laughed. But then he went into a very uh, long discussion of what it was like to be at the court after this leak. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, that there's some fundamental loss of trust that has happened. And he said, you know, why you would you would be surprised that would happen because unlike the other branches of government, leaking is not the way business gets done like it does in Congress and the presidency. This is the first leak of an opinion from the Supreme Court in the history of the court. And most most time for 220 years, most of the federal lower courts too. So he said, uh, I don't know if it will ever, ever be healed. He said, you know, people will look over their shoulders. There's a loss of trust there because the court is different than the other two branches. They don't just show up and vote. They seek to reason together, persuade across many of the most important issues in our society. You have got repeat players who are there 20, 30 years. And he said, um, I don't know if it'll ever be restored. They're bracing words, bracing words. Uh, in terms of the leaker, uh, and who it is. Um, I don't think that uh, the marshal service, which is primarily in charge of courtroom security and has no investigatory knowledge, experience or power, yeah. um, will successfully catch someone unless they want to be caught. Um, if it's a clerk, I suspect it's a clerk. You know why I think it's a clerk, Bill? Because if you and I were leaking this, if you and I were back in the executive branch, mm-hmm. would we leak a 96-page opinion no, no one's going to read a 96 page. We would have leaked the first five pages. <laughs> the first five pages tell you everything you needed to know about what's in the rest of the opinion. Only someone who's really interested, a law geek, would leak the whole thing because they would think someone else would want to read all that. Right. So I think it's probably a law clerk. The thing with law clerks is they're only there for a year. In fact, the, whoever leaked it, if they're a clerk, they're going to be leaving their job in about two weeks and will be moving on to something else. I don't think it's going to be possible to catch them. Plus, we never catch leakers. I've seen national security secrets more important than this that were supposedly uh, held by less people leak, and no one ever caught them. So I, I don't think the leaker is going to be caught unless the leaker wants to announce it in some way or has a guilty mind and leaves crumbs so that we catch them. We'll know eventually 30 or 40 years from now, but I don't think we're going to know anytime soon. 
let's see, it took about what 40 years for Mark Felt to come out as deep. Throat. So, uh, so yeah, 40 years now, you know, are both very old. Well, you'll still be around. I won't be, but by then, but you'll be sitting on your porch. Oh, no, Bill, 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 you keep eating those uh, McDonald's double quarter pounders with cheese. You're going to be around for a long time too with me. Actually, my friend, well, another conversation another day. I've been off of McDonald's for about three weeks now, not to be an old Morgan Spurlock on you now, but I do feel a little better. But another conversation <laughs> for another day. Uh, but let's close out on the clerk thing, though, John. When you become a Supreme Court clerk, do you have to sign the equivalent of an NDA? Do you? Is there anything legally do you have to write saying thou shalt not leak and thou shalt not uh, speak? This is, why it's about so hard to, this is why it's so hard to catch the leaker is it's not clear it's illegal. Yeah. There's no law that says you can't that leaking a Supreme Court or judicial opinions illegal uh, unless things have changed. Uh, and I don't think they have. I'm pretty sure they haven't. You don't sign an NDA right. when you join the Supreme, you work for the Supreme Court. It's just a matter of a tradition and honor, personal honor that you wouldn't leak. Uh-huh. And uh, the theories that people are putting out there have never been tested or tried in terms of prosecuting someone for leaking opinion. In fact, they would apply to the entire government. So it would make leaking throughout the government illegal. And the court, the Justice Department has never brought prosecutions based on these sort of theories that leaking is like stealing government property kind of theories. Mm-hmm. Those aren't going to work. So, you know, I, I, I mean, you could say that in a way the court, I hate to see it this way, but I think uh, people who, and it could be pro-life person as much as a pro-choice person, I tend to think not, but people who cared about abortion that much would be willing to destroy, try to destroy an institution just to win on abortion. And leaking a decision really is taking away one of the fundamental differences of the Supreme Court from the other branches and gave it the ability to have these reasoned debates and discussions and issue opinions uh, on, on the law rather than just showing up and voting like they were members of Congress. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for a few minutes, John, about the uh, the working arrangement of the six conservative justices. Uh, Sam Alito, as you mentioned, authored the Dobbs decision. Uh, Clarence Thomas suggested that the court could do a wider sweep on social issues such as same-sex marriage. Uh, you have the rookie Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, you have Justice Gorsuch. And then you have Ju- Chief Justice Roberts out there with one eye seemingly on legacy. He votes to keep Obamacare alive and kicking, uh, because I think it's as simple as he saw this as a signature accomplishment of America's first black president. He did not want to be the guy who killed that. Mm-hmm. And then you see him again doing something of gymnastics in the Dobbs decision, where he agrees on Dobbs, but he does not agree on overturning Roe. So he's trying to literally have one foot in both camps. So talk a bit, John, about how those six get along. Um, I'm especially curious about Thomas, since you you know him, you're you're close to him, and he has seniority in these matters. So why did, why did Thomas Thomas not write the Dobbs decision. What did it mm. So interesting. So in response to your direct last question, uh, this is why I think Thomas wrote that separate opinion in Dobbs that's causing uh, right. the media to go cuckoo <laughs> because he said, well, under the theory of Roe, if there are no rights from the due process clause, then these other decisions are wrong too. Mm-hmm. Griswold, which is about contraceptives. Um, Texas, Lawrence versus Texas, which is about... Uh, gay uh, sex and um, Obergefell about gay marriage. He didn't say I would overrule them all, which is what the media makes it seem like he said. He said that we have to reconsider where in the constitution these rights come from because they're not set out anywhere in the text. So if there's gonna be an error, and he said, I think it's the privileges and immunities clause, which has been read as a dead letter since the 19th century. But I, I, think, he, I think he happens to be right there. But because he believes that, uh, I don't think he could write the majority opinion because you notice what Alito was very careful to do in Dobbs, and maybe that he did this to right, reduce the furor, maybe did this to increase public acceptance, but he said clearly that Dobbs does not result in us overturning or questioning those other decisions. Mm-hmm. And Justice Kavanaugh, who many people, and I think so too, is the fifth vote uh, to support Dobbs, said in his own, he wrote separately, say, we are not looking over Obergefell, we're not going to go back and re-examine gay marriage. If Kavanaugh doesn't want to do it, then the court's not going to do it. So I think that's why Thomas does it, because he actually has a very different theory of individual rights than Alito and the Trump justices do. And how they get along, it's interesting, these justices. So, you know, you really see, it's interesting, uh, um, a lack of compromise between the liberal justices and conservative justices. Chief Justice Roberts failed in part in what he wanted to do because he couldn't form that compromise. He, he wrote opinion saying, 
I'd be willing to say Mississippi can ban abortion up to 15 weeks of pregnancy, mm-hmm. but I don't want to overall row. You know, that's not an unreasonable compromise. I don't think it makes legal sense, but as a political compromise, right, he could have brought the court together. The three liberal justices wanted to have nothing to do with him. Right. They would not touch that. If politically, that would have been the smart thing to do. And he could not bring Justice Kavanaugh over to his side. So then the last point, how do they all get along? Um, so I think this lack of compromise uh, reflects uh, a, a new, invigorated, self-confident conservative majority. Mm-hmm. Right? You mentioned Dobbs, guns. Next semester, next year, we're going to have the Harvard affirmative action case. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time believing Harvard's going to prevail now. I mean, if the court's willing to take uh, all the flack from overturning Roe versus Wade, right? Overturning uh, Backy is a case, is uh, you know the racial quotas case is not going to be like a blip. I noticed as a Harvard man, you say that with somewhat delight. <laughs> I went there. Thank God they let me go. But gosh, I don't want them to. <laughs> I don't. I really don't like the way they try to manipulate society. Blessing, <laughs> like, blessing people with Harvard degrees based on who they think has personality in the world. Right. <laughs> but I, you know, I think what you have then is these three younger Trump judges are self-confident, I think, in using the power of the judiciary. And I think Thomas and Alito, they must sit there and look back and say, look, all those dissents we wrote decades ago mm-hmm. are now becoming majority opinions. It must be amazing. And I think uh, one last thing I'll point out, uh, to her credit, Justice Sotomayor gave some public comments off the cuff at a conference a few weeks ago where she was spoke very uh, warmly towards Justice Thomas and said, you know, however much we may disagree, you know, you should realize Justice Thomas is a warm, uh, friendly person, knows everybody at the court, knows all the employees and their families, always asking about them. Um, And so she very much gave the impression that they're still, uh, and Justice Thomas said this too, they're still a family. Right. You know, and then of the course, the justice said they may be a dysfunctional family, but we're still a family. And then he said, "I'm not so sure how strong the family ties will be after the leak." So, I yeah. think we still uh, we still got to see, Bill, what's going to happen in the future, whether the leak will have a long lasting effect. Or my hope is, now that abortion is got they got abortion out of their system, mm-hmm. the court can return something more to normal. I'm going to go back to the what ifs for a second, John. The, the list of history you went through in terms of opportunities to either put a Democrat on the court or codify abortion. What if it's a 5-4 court, John, not a 6-3 court? For example, what happens to Dobbs if it's 5-4 and there's Roberts sitting there as the, lack of a better word, the swing vote? Yeah. Suppose it was the court before Amy Coney Barrett joined right. and Justice Ginsburg was still on the court, or suppose Justice Ginsburg had retired. I, actually, well, actually, let's take that for a second. What if Ginsburg is on the court? What does she? What does she say about this case? Because we know that you know she has been cited often with her with her own dubious thoughts about the. Well, you know, this is the thing. The speech she gave that's often quoted was before she joined the Supreme Court. Once ah. she got on the Supreme Court, she was a pretty firm defender of abortion rights, even though she intellectually knew that Roe was not a good decision. Right. I think it was too difficult for her. So she would have tap danced around it, but a five-four court, John, where you don't, where Robert and I think gets- Chief Justice Roberts wins. I think right. actually the the key thing that happened with Amy Coney Barrett getting confirmed in the very last months of the Trump presidency is that the conservatives don't need Chief Justice Roberts anymore. Uh-huh. You know his sort of acrobatics, which you mentioned in the Obamacare case, and it has been true in other areas as well, yeah. um, where he plays games with the law. He's almost too clever for his own sake. He's so clever at the law that he can make it fit any sort of political outcome he wants. Right. And that's over. I don't think, as long as those five justices, as you said, Thomas, Alito, and the three Trump justices stick together, they don't need John Roberts anymore. So in a 5-4 world, before Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, I think Roberts actually prevails. And then you would have seen Roe still on the books today, but the abortion right narrowed. But right. still abortion, you know, pro-choice forces would live to fight another day, but they here they have to go to the state. I got to emphasize here, they go to the states. It's not like it's over. It's not like abortion rights. are All it means is pro-choice, pro-life. They got to fight it, slog it out in the trenches state by state, which is, I think is good because that takes the political controversy energy away from Washington, D.C. and the Supreme five justices and moves it back to where I think it belongs, spread out and diffuse in the country, which can have a diversity of policies now. That sounds very common, rational. You obviously don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, do you? 
<laughs> you know I don't have a Twitter account. What's going on on Twitter? Are people going crazy? <laughs> it's just, uh, yes, it's, I mean, Twitter is the extreme of both ends, so you get it both sides, but what stands out just seems to be the left, so you have just a lot of gr- aggrieved celebrities, Samuel L. Jackson, the actor, I think, called Thomas and Uncle Tom. Oh, really? Uh, Barbara, Barbara Streisand, what did she equate this to? It was the Taliban or something like that, or Stalinistic trials. I don't know, just a few celebrities threatening to leave the country and so on and so forth. Yeah, just kind Are of- these binding contracts? Because we should keep them to it. <laughs> well, I really do at some point want to do a deep dive and track down every celebrity who promised to leave the country after something didn't go their way in terms of a court decision or election. <laughs> it's a pretty formidable list by now, but just- Bill, can, you I, ask you one, can I ask you one thing, what you think? So this is just an idea that's mm-hmm. been kicking around. Do you think- uh, that if the Dobbs case had not leaked early, that the political response would be much worse. So I'm in Washington. I'm seeing these protests. At the same time, I'm not seeing courthouses set on fire. I'm not seeing it's, it's not like the Black Lives Matter protests. So I wonder whether the fact that people kind of knew two months ahead of time what was going to happen. Do you think maybe it, uh, you know, it had the effect of relieving the pressure, as it were? No, I think one thing that happened, John, was something happened between the leaking of the of the decision and the decision itself. I mean, first of all, the decision was not a surprise. The decision, you've read the decision uh, more closely than I have, and you're a legal scholar and I'm not, but I think what you saw leaked was pretty much what you got, right? Yep. In fact, so, uh, it was almost like Alito's giving the back of the hand to the leaker. He's yeah. like, not only I'm not going to acknowledge you, but I'm not going to change any of this. <laughs> right. But what happened between the leak, John, and the actual decision? Uvalde. And we had uh, about two weeks of just everyone going wild about gun safety in America and about school mass shootings. And that became the cost of eleven. That's what's been interesting about 2022, John, when you think about it. Um, election years tend to be dominated by one issue predominantly, and we tend to think it's the economy inflation. But you've had several things kind of pop up. I mean, Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And you have the economy, inflation and gasoline prices. Then Uvalde, and now you have Dobbs. And the question is now, John, we are about, what, I think 18 and a half weeks away from the election right now. And can this continue to drive the left? And can the left turn this into something productive? Because that's the question. Uh, uh, we were talking before we came on the air about um, about protests that are going on. And out here in Los Angeles, there have been uh, four days of protest, days of fourth day of protest. And one gentleman saw, um, saw it fit to actually attack a policeman, not just attack the policeman, but try to light up on fire and what was called a a make place flamethrower was the phrase they used for it um this is a problem for the left john in that you can there are productive ways there are productive ways to protest unproductive ways to protest and productive ways to organize and try to move people over to your side what would that be you know show signs show numbers and then go out and organize and get people to turn out to vote and either get people elected or drive people out of office on the other hand, there are productive ways to do this, John, and they takes us back to the summer of 2020 when what? In response to George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, you had not just protests around the country, but riots and looting and so forth. And so there was the CNN reporter uh, referring to mostly fiery but peaceful protests. And in the background, you saw buildings on fire. And so in other words, it's as simple as taking things too far. But here's the question uh, in this election, and we'll get back to the courts here in a second. Um, this election could shape us very simple as body versus pocketbook, if you will, mm-hmm. and that Democrats will try their best now to nationalize this election as referendum in part on abortion and out of control court. And by Donald Trump having put three of those people on the court, Donald Trump as well. Always try to bring Donald Trump in the conversation with you, Ken. And I suspect Republicans will try to do the opposite as they did in congressional races in 2020 and try to localize things. And how do you localize an election? And this climate is very simple, John. How many times have you been to the grocery store this month? How many times have you put gasoline in your car? And tell me what that's like. And so that's, I think, where you know, I think where things shape down. But no, I'm just I'm just kind of shocked, John, just about how fluid we are in this country from moving on from one one great thing to another. And it just really shot because, you know, before Dobbs came down, it was just guns, guns, guns. And now here we are. It's abortion, abortion, abortion. Also, because of the things else, other things that are happening in the country, maybe the response to overturning Roe is also muted. Think about, I was thinking about what would have happened if this had occurred in the first two years of the Trump presidency, right. when the economy was going pretty well, there are foreign threats, there, you know, we don't have the foreign threats like we do in Ukraine, people already ticked off at Trump. And then this had happened, I think it has a much bigger impact, but things are, this is why I, 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 things were going so badly on so many fronts in the country that I don't think people have the sustained attention on Roe 
I don't mean, I could be wrong about this, but I think, you know, I just filled up my gas tank. It was over a hundred dollars. I took a picture of it because I'd never seen it cost a hundred dollars yeah. to fill up my gas tank. And yeah, you know, prices at some of the things at the grocery store, are like 50%, a hundred percent, I think higher than they were a year ago. I don't know that I would, you know, you were on, I was around for the 94 uh, landslide. I was in Washington at the time. And then I saw the 2010 uh, landslide uh, for Republicans. And my memory is the polling back then on the generic congressional poll was like zero or plus one Republican. And yeah. I thought I saw a poll that said plus six Republican the other day before, before uh, Dobbs though. But I don't think Roe versus Wade being overturned, uh, overturned throws the election back to the Democrats by eight, nine points, which it would have to be to have them keep their majority. Look at it one direct, but look at it one step set, John, and that's with young voters. Um, Democrats have a real problem with the youth vote right now. It begins with Joe Biden. Young voters are just turned off by Joe Biden. They just, I don't know if it's just the appearance of just kind of an old guy who's just not that vigorous. And perhaps they just, you know, Democrats always love young candidates to begin with. So they wish they had a, an Obama or a Jack Kennedy. Um, and then also the you know, the fact that the you know, things that the young vote uh, young voters in theory want the great progressive agenda it ain't happening in Washington, in theory this could animate them in ways that yeah. they haven't been animated so far. Actually, interesting enough with young men who are actually a little more passionate. You talk to pollsters about this; they'll tell you that actually young men are more passionate about about the abortion issue than young women are. So go figure. But that's probably because women. It's a, it's a very complicated topic for women to process versus men because yeah. it's their body. So maybe we'll see it with youth votes. But let's uh, speak of that, John. Let's, it, uh, one last thing is in midterms all about turnout. And so, right, because the out of par, out of power party usually right. gets better turnout. Maybe Roe, overturning Roe is what drives turnout on the Democratic side. Well, it's a, it's a start for Democrats because there hasn't been much to talk about up to this point. And Uvalde, in theory, was going to be a starting point for that. So maybe the Dobbs on top of that gets people out to vote. But you know what? Let's see, 18 weeks from now, what happens. But uh, let's be with you, John, back in your Washington here. I was looking at some numbers on Joe Biden and judicial nominations. And actually, he's been busier on this than Donald Trump was up to this point. Quite curious. Mm -hmm. So Biden so far has uh, nominated 81 individuals to the court. He has 41 confirmations. This is of earlier this month. At this point in his presidency, Trump had 69 uh, nominations and only 22 confirms. But then you look at the second year of the Trump presidency, which was the midterm, and the GOP got very busy very fast. And I suspect this is the very smart Mitch McConnell realizing we're in trouble this election. <laughs> and so whether they, they started blasting people through. So do you think, John, that in terms of, you know, in terms of uh, other offshoots of this decision, do you think we're going to see the Democrats trying to speed up uh, nominations now in the Senate? Yeah, it's possible, but I think it's too late because, as you said, there's 18 weeks to the midterms. And if the Senate switches just one vote. Yeah. You know, the express train is over. You know, right. McConnell had you know, the last two years of the Trump presidency. And the other thing is, I, I don't know if you saw these. I, I remember going to events where I saw McConnell speak and he said he thought his greatest he wanted his greatest legacy actually to be mm -hmm. uh, the transformation of the judiciary, returning it to original principles. I think he has succeeded. I don't think Chuck Schumer talks that way. I mean, he gave a crazy speech in front of the court, you know, a few years ago, threatening retaliation against Gorsuch and Kavanaugh should they vote against uh, Roe versus Wade. But it, maybe that goes to your point of how many things are going on, all the problems the country has. I don't see Schumer and his caucus making the confirmation of judges a big priority. They'll talk about it as a big priority. Right. And I don't think in 18 weeks there's enough time. So having, having worked in the Senate, in the Judiciary Committee, as general counsel, and worked on nominations, you can't move that many people through in 18 weeks when your Congress isn't even in session, probably the majority of those days when you go into a, a midterm. Yeah, and I think at this point, John, they're consumed by one thing. They would like to find ways to spend money as best as they can before. So, <laughs> yes. It's know, something it's very, they're very good at, too. <laughs> it's very funny. You know, I'm a, uh, I grew up in Washington, John. I'm very familiar. Oh, I didn't know with, that. Yeah, I grew up in D.C. I'm very familiar with the ways of the town. And I remember back in the day, uh, there was a Riggs Bank at the corner. Yeah, Riggs. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know if Riggs Banks is still around or not. But, no, they went uh, out of Got, yeah, got eaten up by somebody else, but it used to be right there at the corner of the heart of Georgetown at Wisconsin and M and yes. really dating myself here and now, but um, this is back when ATMs were a relative novelty. If you want to really bore young people, explain to them how once upon a time in America, if you wanted to get cash on a Saturday, you had to do it before noon because banks closed at noon and you were out of luck. No, ATMs. Well, if you want to have, you want to have fun like that, try to explain to a young person how typewriters actually worked. 
<laughs> you pressed a button and a little arm would come out with a letter and press it into the paper. Exactly. Exactly. You don't want to hear about that. But anyway, John, uh, the Riggs Bank ATM had a problem one Friday night. Somebody went to make a withdrawal and out came his or her money. And then the machine started spitting out 20s after that. Oh. This is on a Friday at Georgetown. So you know what happened next? Mayhem ensued. Just everybody swooped down on the ATM, started <laughs> scooping up $20 bills. And there's poor Riggs Bank trying to figure out how to, re- how to recollect its $20 bills. But I mention this because this gets back to what I asked you about the uh, about conservative activism. If you looked at Washington in early 2009, John, the ATM was wide open for you if you had a progressive cause and needed money because you had a Democratic president, Democratic Congress. They spit out money like 20s coming out of an ATM. Um, This gets back to my theory, though, if you're a conservative activist right now, judicial conservative activist, you look at the 6-3 court and you look at the fact that it's led by Clarence Thomas, who turned 74 the day before the Dobbs decision. He's now a very sprightly 74. But the bank is open, but it's not going to be open forever. That's a really good point. I mean, you have this majority um, at some point, I hope no time soon, you're going to uh, you'll see some other justices retire. Could be Thomas, could be Alito, could be Roberts. Right. You know, uh, you know, Sotomayor Kagan are slightly younger, but not that much younger. And then the people who are going to be there have longevity are going to be the three Trump justices and KBJ. Right. So yes, you could say, well, maybe that means there's 10 more years to this conservative uh, resurgence, this renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I could see you saying, well, let's get everything through. But as you also said, Bill, a lot of it is the cases that just come to them. They're not the ones with the agenda in a way. I mean, they have a uh, they have an ideological way of how they think the Constitution should be interpreted. But the justices are passive in the sense that the cases have to come to them. So as you, I think as you pointed out earlier, it's really the litigants who have to figure out what there is to do, where to press. I think one area you're going to see a lot of activity now is church state. Uh, you mentioned the case of the uh, kneeling uh, state, the kneeling Washington State football coach, high right. school football coach. Uh, I think you're seeing more and more cases like that, in part because I think the groups that litigate on behalf of religious liberty are really well organized. Um, another area that I'm uh, close to part of with the Pacific Legal Foundation is I think you're going to see a lot more litigation now um, attacking uh, the restrictions on property, which mm-hmm. have been on the books since the New Deal. I think you're going to see uh, more efforts to stop the government from blocking development of land. Uh, you're going to see more uh, suspicion of environmental regulations and how much they're prevent- preventing economic development. And then I think the other thing, that, and I think the last leg, I think this is going to be the real legacy of the Roberts Court, other than Roe versus Wade is going to be attacking the independence of this vast administrative state. And you're starting to see groups spring up around the country, which are bringing cases to overturn doctrines, which are uh, you know unheard of to most normal Americans, like the Chevron doctrine, or trying to enforce things like the non-delegation doctrine. Those are right beyond the interest and attention spans of most people. Yeah. But changes there could result in real differences in the everyday lives of Americans, because the way the Right. The way the state regulates our lives, as we saw with the COVID lockdowns, is a feature of this concentration of power in these experts who are not accounted, not accountable uh, democratically. So that the, the, those are the areas where I think the ATM machine could still spit out the 20s, although because of Biden inflation, it would have to be hundreds now, wouldn't it? Exactly. Two final, two final questions, John. I'll let you go. Um, for years, Roe has been the gotcha question. When a conservative Supreme Court nominee comes before the Senate Judiciary Committee, it's, do you think Roe is established law? What would you do with Roe? And the judicial nominee does his or her best to just kind of tap dance around it. If we move forward to, say, 2025, John, or beyond, and let's say there's another conservative justice appearing for that committee, what's the new gotcha question? Oh, that's great because, you know, part of what I think is I hope that people aren't going to care so much about confirmation hearings anymore now that we're not just trying to figure out secret ways to find out what they're going to actually do on Roe versus Wade. Yeah, so it's interesting now that Roe versus Wade is gone. I think the question is uh, the one that Justice Thomas identified. Do you Mm -hmm. think that there are unwritten constitutional rights? And if they exist, where do they come from? And this is always the question we lawyers ask. What's the limit? What's your limiting principle? Uh, And that's always actually a problem that people who were supporting Roe versus Wade had is if you allow Roe versus Wade, what's the limit to what the unenumerated rights are? 
Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because I don't know if you're, if you follow this stuff, Bill, but on the conservative wing, there are people who are now calling for the court to be more muscular right. in advancing unwritten conservative rights. Mm-hmm. Um, what's called common good conservatism, common good constitutionalism, which says, I mean, it says, let's look at natural law or the traditions of the Catholic Church over 2000 years or a certain thinker, you know, not, I would say non-liberal thinkers mm-hmm. who point to certain values in society we should have supporting the family and providing prosperity right. and security. And let's use those things right. and put those into the constitutional law. So they want to do just as much as I think the left wanted to do during the Warren court and the Roe versus right. Wade court, but just in the conservative direction. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen. I really hope that doesn't happen. But for the left, John, fighting about, yeah. But for the left, John Roe had this utility. You're a Democratic senator, and you try to put a a Republican nominee on the spotlight by asking on the hot seat by asking about Roe. And why do you do that? Because it appeals to your base, women in particular. You can't get elected to a national office as a Democrat unless there's a substantial gender gap working in your favor. And it's a perfect narrative for Democrats because why? I let a bunch of men on the court tell a woman what to do with her body. So I'm just curious, John, if you see any issue out there that has yeah. the same utility yeah. that Roe did. No, in terms of the politics, I totally agree with you in terms of gotcha questions for hearings. I can't think of any replacement for Roe. Maybe, maybe gay marriage. Right. Maybe gay marriage. But I don't think it has that kind of you know, broad appeal and saliency. Also, it doesn't have as big as effect because I think gay marriage gets overturned. I don't think it would be, but it gets overturned. And I think most states make it legal almost immediately. Right. So if there's a change of power in Washington come 2024 and 2025, you, John, you might have some options. I could do my best now to get you divorced. Uh, <laughs> no, you could be very much in demand to come back to Washington and work in the Justice Department as you once did. I failed to mention that too in the intro. You could also be a judicial nominee, although I think- <laughs> Never. Not, not, no, not to embarrass you. You have a birthday coming up, but I, I know the number it is, and you're probably about 10 years past peak for that, to be honest about it, right? <laughs> You probably agree with that too. You I'm, want, yeah, I'm way too old now because I entered my 50s. <laughs> yeah, you want somebody in their 30s or 40s. But this is the question, John, about if you were in a position to be a judicial nominee, let's say you were a younger man and it did intrigue you, would you want to be a judge in this current environment? Because you look, you look at what happened to Kavanaugh and yeah. it's or Amy Coney Barrett too. Or Amy Coney Barrett, in terms of just, you know, you are under siege, your children are potentially under siege, and there are people crazy out there who might want to off you. So we want to kill you and your family so, after. So yeah. do you fear that there are we going to lose talent on the on the on the bench because of these actions? Oh yeah. In fact, um, then this is not just true for conservatives. There are people on the left who bemoan this too. Um, you look at uh you look at the Supreme Court in the last century, particularly in the beginning of the last century, you had giants of the legal profession like Felix Frankfurter or Oliver Wendell Holmes or Louis Brandeis, you know, Cardozo, the great minds of their time were put on the Supreme Court. And uh, while I like the outcomes of the court, and I, I, I think many of them are very good justices, this is not that kind of Supreme Court. Right. You're have, you've got a Supreme Court that's mostly made up of professional judges. You know, they were lower court judges. They made a specialty of not not having a record on controversial issues in a way. And the problem is, yes, the confirmation process, you're exactly right, Bill, the the confirmation process, distorted as it was by Roe, I think led to a lot of the best minds putting aside the judiciary. I don't know. I think this is true broadly of confirmations. I think the federal government is not getting the best people it could Mm -hmm. because of the way confirmation hearings have Again, I think it's, I don't think it's because of Roe and those other areas. It's just that what happened with Roe distorting the judicial confirmation process, it leaked over to the other confirmation processes. Uh And I think you're not seeing the best people on the left and the right join the government. And that is bad. I I agree with you, Bill. That is bad for our decision-making and for the leadership of the country. Sometimes I think you see its effects and who we see in high office these days and and even in the last administration too. Yeah, I mean, I have this theory, John. It's going back to Kavanaugh and the uh, the attempt to assassinate him. The media said, well, this is the result of the abortion decision being licked out. Somebody is so aggrieved by the decision decided to kill Kavanaugh. Well, think about this for a second, John. If you're so aggrieved by the abortion decision that you want to kill a justice, you probably go after Samuel Alito. You go after, you go after the guy who wrote the decision, after Kavanaugh. So why would you go after Kavanaugh? 
Well, maybe it's because you know his home address, but it's also because of one thing, because that man was taken through the mud like really nobody else in modern times yeah, yeah. to being a drunk and a rapist and an all-around horrible human being. So therefore, I imagine the mind of somebody very deranged. He's not fit for the not fit the job to begin with, so let's kill him. This, I think, John, is what begets from this awful confirmation process. Yeah, that's true. You've demonized people yeah. on the left and the right, most particularly on the right. Yeah, because you're right. If you were really trying to assassinate a justice, God forbid, to try to stop the outcome in Dobbs, any one of the conservatives would have done. Right? Yeah. He could have tried to, although I, I would hope that Chief Justice Roberts would have voted with the majority then to say that you can't right, intimidate us. But who knows if he would have. But you're right. You're perfectly right, Bill. The, the confirmation process, and I feel a lot of sympathy for Brett Kavanaugh. A lot of people don't want to be Brett Kavanaugh. Right. I mean, yes, you're a Justice Supreme Court. It's an important job. But remember, he said, I you've ruined my life. I can't go out anymore. He loved coaching girls basketball. He can't do that anymore. Right. He's not he can't have a regular life ever again. I hate to say it. I think I saw some of that with Justice Thomas that, you know, he can't go anywhere in public, really, right. everybody, uh, because of what happened with him in his confirmation hearings in 1991. I I think in a way, I, I don't, I hope this is not true, but I think in a way some of the more extreme groups on the left, basically, right, they're saying this is the price you're going to go through if you really want to be on the court uh, or even on the lower courts, because this is now start, it's starting to spread to, if you look at the voting and the tactics, this was not just Supreme Court nominees, it now spread to circuit judges, even federal trial judges. And I, I think it's a terrible thing because it's going to uh, guarantee a certain mediocrity. Yeah, um, and I think it, get, it gets down to one thing, John, and that's responsible politicians. So the Judiciary Committee has to be responsible in how it does its hearings. You can decide who you want to trot out to testify against somebody, but by God, you better have them out there with proof and not just you know, a lot of salacious secondhand, well, this is what I thought happened at the time and nobody can back it up. Uh, and <laughs> don't, don't hold your breath, Bill, that this is going to happen. I, I know, but I'm just saying, if you want to you want to do this, yeah. this is how you get away with it. And then secondly, it's politicians to be more careful with the words, getting back to Chuck Schumer, standing in front of the Supreme Court and saying, you will reap the whirlwind of this. Well, what does that mean? Is he saying, well, voters are going to turn on the mass or no, we're going to come get you. We're going to lynch you. So got to be careful. Or at least... President Biden could have come out and spoken forcefully once those protests started at justices' houses or when there was an assassination attempt on right. a sitting Supreme Court justice to forcefully condemn the violence and deploy the Justice Department right away in force to protect the Supreme Court, no matter how you feel about their right. opinions. And one, one last thing this really brings up, Bill, is, yes, we're all wrapped up in who wins, who loses, the day-to-day -day politics of it, and even of court decisions. And people who are pro-choice and pro-life at the extremes really put that to the fore at the sacrifice of the institution. And the Supreme Court's more important than pro-choice, pro-life. They have to stand up for rights against the police, right? Whether you right, agree or disagree with any particular decision, they're the ones who stand up for our rights to free speech when we're speaking unpleasant or unpopular thoughts that the majority wants to suppress. And I don't, are people like, the, I'm afraid sometimes are than the Biden administration, or the extremes on abortion, so willing to win on their moment issue of the day that they're willing to sacrifice the institution that's there to protect our individual rights against the majority on lots of other things than just abortion. Yeah. And that's what I'm worried is at stake with this politicization you're talking about, Bill. Yeah. Well, John, enjoy what time you have left in Washington. I hope the humidity doesn't get you. <laughs> Given my current dietary restrictions, just go order double what you normally get at McDonald's. Well, Bill, you know what? No, I got to say, when the Dobbs case came out and I was in a halfway celebratory mood, I did go to McDonald's and I got a double quarter pounder with cheese. And if you use the app, I got free fries and a free drink. <laughs> <laughs> and I did think because there's also a two for one sandwich special going on. I was thinking about getting, which would have really meant I got a quadruple quarter pounder with cheese, but I held back. And then I also had the new, you know, I, I can't get the McRib, uh, but they did have this new thing called a chocolate pretzel McFlurry, which oh. was awesome. That's brought, that was like a Philly, that's like a Philly invention. Oh, oh, that was awesome. And you know what? I don't get paid. I don't know. I don't get paid to, <laughs> to, to represent McDonald's or advertise for them. I wouldn't want me. But God, it was a great meal. <laughs> okay. Well, fast forward 30 years from now, and there you are with your little uh, oxygen thing in your nose testifying in front of Congress. <laughs> they never told me. <laughs> 
Okay. Hey, John, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me back. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast. That's Hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of John Yu and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. I mentioned John's fine book, Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. It's available where good books are sold. Looking forward to John's sequel to that, If and When the Man Runs in 2024. Do you think he's going to run Trump? You know better than me, but gosh, he can run on the Trump justices, couldn't he? <laughs> Might have to go into a second edition, my book. <laughs> there you go. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics, talking about our talking to our political scientists about what the polls have to say about Dobbs and other matters in the court. Till then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.